Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. We have a systems problem. For 120 years, we have figured out that if you take energy out of the ground and burn it, you can create a profit and sell convenience. And that system paved the earth. That system fed billions of people. That system made more rich people than any other thing in the history of the world. And that system is killing us. So the way to fix it is with a new system. Hey, everyone. A couple weeks ago, our episode focused on speed and scale a comprehensive action plan to cut emissions in half by 2030 and to reach net zero by 2050. It's a book and an ambitious ongoing effort to track global progress in addressing climate change. This week, we focus again on a book and an ambitious ongoing effort, The Carbon Almanac. Over 300 volunteers created the book, and now it's a movement of over 1,900 people who are continuing to add resources and to help the world get the facts straight about climate. The founder and lead organizer of this ambitious project is someone you've likely heard of before, Seth Godin. Seth has written over 20 best-selling books. He's widely recognized as a thought leader on marketing, how ideas spread, leadership, creativity, and change. I was thrilled to have a chance to talk to Seth, and he was just as fun and thought-provoking as I hoped. Okay, a little warning. Something happens in the background towards the end of the episode. Normally, we'd edit out for you, but it actually led to a really interesting discussion about a way everyday people can have a lot of impact. I'll let it remain a surprise for you, but you'll know it when you hear it. Enjoy. Seth Godin, welcome to Invested in Climate. Well, thank you for having me. But more important, thank you for doing this. It's not easy to show up on the regular, and I appreciate it. Thank you. That means a lot. Thank you as well. So glad to have you here today. Where do we actually find you today? I am 13 miles north of New York City on the Hudson River. I was in my canoe on a fjord an hour ago. Oh, lucky you. That sounds beautiful. And I was thrilled to be back in New York for the first time in a few years uh, for Climate Week last week. Really exciting to feel all the energy that was there. Let's dive in. There's so much to talk about. And I want to first get us grounded and just hear about what you've helped create. What is the Garbon Almanac and how did it come to be? I love almanacs. I've made more almanacs than most human beings. I did the business almanac, the celebrity almanac, the women's almanac. Almanacs go back all the way to Ben Franklin. They are collections of browsable and true information. Sort of the mantra is you can look it up. And what I discovered. I wrote my first blog post about climate 16 years ago, 
And amazingly, it did not solve the problem. And what I discovered over the ensuing years is that it's hard to talk about it because you feel like a hypocrite, because you are, I am. And it's hard to talk about it because it is deliberately obfuscated and complicated by people who don't want us to talk about it. And I decided that if I was confused and hesitant, I bet other people were as well. And so what I sought out to do was to use the method itself that we built it as an example of how we could come together to do something about it. So I'm a volunteer and so are my 300 other co-authors. There's now 1,900 of us in 91 countries around the world. None of us get a penny from this project, but we made a 97,000 word book, illustrated it, fact-checked it, designed it, laid it out, and submitted it with footnotes to the publisher in less than 150 days. Amazing. Let's go deeper into this unique process for creating a book. You really could have done this in many different ways. You are an author who's written over 20 best-selling books and writing a book on climate change. One is a big choice of, of looking at the problem instead of looking away from it. So I'm curious what motivated you to look at it and why create the book in such an unusual way? You said in some ways that you're modeling the solution that you're thinking of. Okay. So is this the existential crisis of our lifetime? I think it is. I think that nuclear weapons were in the year that I was born, 1960. But it's pretty clear that fighting the weather is outside of the control of any human, no matter how many billions of dollars they have. You just can't fight the weather. And over time, taken together, weather becomes climate. And it is changing. It is changing right in front of us. There's going to be tens of millions of climate refugees in just a couple of years. And if you have kids or grandchildren, they will ask you, what did you do when there was still time? And if we decide as a species not to do anything about it, knowing what we know, well, then that's what we decided. But it struck me as inexcusable for us to make the decision without knowing. And I've been in the business of helping people know and understand my whole life. And if I have the privilege and opportunity to turn on some lights, I feel like that's an obligation. And in terms of the volunteer nature of this, we have a systems problem. The systems problem, and you're an expert on systems because of where you work, but the systems problem is that for 120 years, we have figured out that if you take energy out of the ground and burn it, you can create a profit and sell convenience. And that system paved the earth. That system fed billions of people. That system made more rich people than any other thing in the history of the world. And that system is killing us. So the way to fix it is with a new system. And an example of systemic thinking is not Seth Godin sitting in a corner making a book by himself with his opinion in it, but building a system to make a book. And we did that together. So we like to say this is our book, not my book. And every single person who touches it is an author of our future. Really gets to a question that so many people grapple with the role of individuals in a systemic challenge like climate change. On the one hand, we're all so powerful. And the other hand, it's such a big problem. And so having worked on climate change now through this book in a new uh, systems building way, what's your perspective on the role of individuals in this moment? Well, the first thing that we need to say out loud is that Olivia Mather, brilliant ad agency, and they invented one of the most important marketing ideas of our lifetime, which is carbon footprint. They made it up. Carbon footprint doesn't matter. And plastics recycling, about the same year, invented by the plastics industry. Plastics recycling doesn't work. 
Both of those things are designed to make people who care feel guilty, feel like hypocrites, and say, I am not doing enough. But a single human being cannot change any significant system in our world. We change systems, not by saying, I'm going to compost, not by saying, I'm going to recycle my plastic water bottle, but by doing things like creating Meatless Monday at the local school, banning leaf blowers in our local town, asking every politician every single time we meet them as the very first question, what are you doing about the climate? Because right now in our country, you can run for office and it's going to be the 10th or 20th question you get asked. Well, if it becomes the first question over and over and over again, they're going to do something about it. The government doesn't lead, it follows. What it follows is culture and culture is simply what do we do around here? What are things like? People like us do things like this. We need a systemic change. And I don't care if you're a hypocrite. The only people who are going to make this change are hypocrites. I really respect that you're pointing to culture and the need for culture change. And this is coming from uh, really you as a thought leader on culture and culture change. And I've heard you say that culture change is about affiliation and status. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's culture in regards to climate change and how it's changing and what needs to happen for it to change more to really provide the foundation for a climate positive society. That's a long answer, but let me try to take it bit by bit. Uh, my book, This Is Marketing, explains that all marketing, all design thinking, all human interaction is about either status or affiliation. Once people have enough to eat and a roof over their head, all we care about is status or affiliation. Status is who eats lunch first, who's up, who's winning, who's down. And affiliation is who are you next to? Are you fitting in? Are you wearing the right clothes? Do people like you? Status and affiliation explain every single parliamentary vote and every single argument in politics, status and affiliation. So for a lot of years, the people who were speaking up about climate were seeking affiliation. They were part of a movement. We talk about this. We talk about the baby seals. We talk about this because we are climate activists. And now it's starting to be about status that there are wealthy people who do things like say that Patagonia is going to do nothing but work to make a difference in the climate. There are successful people who don't get on airplanes anymore. There are successful people who don't eat meat anymore because it's a sign of status that you have a choice to live this life this way. And so when we think about bringing an idea or a design to the world, we got to start by saying, what are we selling people? Are we selling them status? Are we selling them affiliation? Because people don't make any decisions based on spreadsheets and RFPs. You've asked the question, is culture here to defend capitalism or is capitalism here to defend culture? And maybe the stakes have now changed and it's not just about culture, but life on earth. And is it here to defend capitalism or will our economic system evolve to defend life on earth? As you think about the culture and the changing culture and the stakes that are now involved, what does it take to get to that next level of action? Okay, so let's start with the capitalism part. Capitalism is a fairly recent invention, and it uses markets to identify and solve problems. And it's brilliantly good at that. That market-driven, non-monopoly capitalism, where you keep track of side effects, is an amazing solution. But side effects are a problem because there's no such thing as just effects. So there are certain people who are busy racing to the bottom who scold us 
and say that culture has no business doing things like having an EPA, no business doing things like having an FDA, that we should just let the market solve everything. But it can't because it ignores side effects. So what I would like to argue is that the purpose of our culture, the lives we live, is not to permit capitalists to make as much money as possible. The purpose of capitalism is to see the market and to enable a better culture to exist. And when we look at it that way, it means that we not only are allowed to speak up to make things better, we need to, we must unite, come together and say, capitalism needs boundaries. It needs platforms. It needs things that aren't allowed, right? Cannibalism isn't allowed. Slavery isn't allowed. Overt racism isn't allowed. We made these rules for a reason. They all cost the capitalists money in the short run, but they all make the world better. So now... The question we need to ask is not what will Wall Street want, not what will the venture capitalists want, but maybe we need to ask what will the earth want? Because it turns out that if we treat the biosphere that we live in as a client, you are setting up a resilient path forward and your business will in the long run do better. And for the people who don't believe that, we need to work as a community to make rules so they do. I grew up 12 miles from the Love Canal, which was the first famous toxic waste dump. It was outside of Buffalo, New York. And women lost their babies. People developed cancer because Hooker Chemical just dumped waste in the middle of a subdivision. I think we can all agree that that's not okay. And now I live near the Hudson River, which 100 years ago was so polluted you couldn't go near it because people just peed and pooped in the river whenever they wanted to. New York City didn't say, Oh, by the way, if it's inconvenient for you, we would appreciate it if you wouldn't pee in the river. They said, you're not allowed to pee in the river. And then they built a sewer system so it wouldn't happen. And we need to do the same thing with the climate. It's not optional. The rules are you can't make things worse than you found them. And we're going to build systems so that can happen. I think it's a great moment to dive into some of the specifics of what you learned, both in terms of, of the problems as well as the potential solutions. You've pulled together hundreds of volunteers. You've gone through, I imagine, thousands and thousands of sources, a ton of research. And now you walk away and what are you looking at in terms of what do we need to change and what are some things that you're most excited to work on? A couple of things that are important to say. The Almanac doesn't have an opinion. The Almanac is a collection of facts and you can look every single one up. Every page of the Almanac has a three-digit number on it, and you can go to our website, type in the three-digit number, and see every footnote we use. Number two, when I talk about the Almanac, beyond that basis, this is me talking, not all 300 of us. But as someone who is looking at the math, as someone who's a trained mechanical engineer, I would say there are two really useful takeaways for the average person to embrace. The first one is if we wanted to make a big impact in one day, just one day, it would be get rid of all the cows. Cows are 20 to 30% of the climate change problem. Cows, that means milk and meat. And in most countries of the world, they eat a tiny fraction of the milk and meat we eat in the United States. That if everyone on earth ate meat the way we do in the United States, we would need a whole other planet just to hold the cows. So the growth of cattle as an industry is directly related to our problem. That doesn't mean it's the only solution, but you just need to know up front, 
that we could do that right away if we wanted to. The second thing that I took away is that if we gave everybody a dividend, cash money, and paid for that dividend by charging a fair price for combusting fuel, if we just said very simply, we're going to charge what we should charge for gas and oil and burning plastic, then the market would listen. And within a week, so many things would change because the market is good at listening. But what we've been doing instead is burning it and not charging the people who burn it for killing us, for raising our sea level, for killing our animals and for filling our lungs with stuff we don't want. If someone came to your house and dumped red ink on your front porch every single day, you would call the cops. But that is what happens every single time a diesel truck drives by. So the first issue, reducing the consumption or eliminating the consumption of beef and and reducing the impacts of cows on carbon emissions. That's something that a lot of people are working on, whether it's by changing the feedstock so that cows burp and fart less, or or trying to reduce uh, consumption of meat by creating synthetic created lab-grown meat. The second issue that you brought up in terms of putting a price on carbon, is there progress on that? It's not something that you hear as much about. There's a huge amount of progress. There are more than 50 countries around the world that are already doing this in a small amount. And the key is the first significant country that adds a border adjustment will ratchet every other country to do it. And it's simple, which is Again, everyone's getting a dividend. The government's not touching any of this money. It's all going straight to each person in the country. But you know when something's coming into the country how much carbon is embodied in it. And what that would mean is regardless of what country things were made in, the people who made them would have to be cognizant of how much carbon they're using. And it would have a ripple effect around the world. So it's taking a long time. And the reason is there are industries that can't figure out how to carbon reduce. Industries that make jet fuel, for example. And they're fighting this with everything they've got because they have lacked the imagination. They would rather destroy where their children are going to live than have three bad quarters in a row of profitability, which breaks my heart. You know, American Airlines just announced they put in an order for, I think it was 10 supersonic jets to arrive in, I don't know, 10 years or so. And they promised that they would be fueled with regenerated jet fuel. What they failed to mention is there isn't enough land on the planet to grow enough trees to make the fuel that these jets are going to require. We need to rethink the systems we live in. And part of that is it might be that you can't fly from New York to London in six hours for $400. Maybe that's not okay. Well, it brings up an interesting question because you've talked about how culture change is is about affiliation and status, but it also has to be partially about the ideas themselves and the ability to imagine a different future or to put yourself inside of new mental models. Where does that come from? How does that start? So let's think about how systems change. They almost never change because a brilliant person figured out a new mental model. They change incrementally. The electric car is 120 years old. It took 120 years for the ratchet to slowly turn to the point where someone like me or you can drive an electric car. So I think that asking for perfect is a really tall order. I was at there at the beginning of the internet. I helped invent email marketing before the World Wide Web. Nobody 
at any of the conferences I went to stood up and described the inanity that is Facebook or Twitter. Nobody, right? You didn't need to hear what the internet was going to be like in 2022 to change the systems of today. Instead, it was one little thing. Oh, wait, you mean if I send an email to that person, they won't get it in a week, they'll get it in a second and it won't cost either of us any money? What do we do with that? Then what do we do with this? And then here's AOL and then here's Prodigy and then here's the World Wide Web, but it's GeoCities and it's really ugly. And slowly systems evolve and change based on fundamental principles. The fundamental principle here is super simple. Once we price carbon fairly, and we will, what are you going to do about it? And as that starts showing up around the edges, we're seeing organizations figuring out how they're going to build a new platform the same way. Not one big company that I called on in 1989 wanted the internet to succeed. Not one. No one said, great news, the internet is here. They all said, oh, we'll deal with that later. And that's why all the internet companies are companies you never heard of, like Google. Random House could have started Google with three people. That's all you needed to start Google, but Random House didn't do it. Because Random House said, we like cutting down trees and making books. It took a new company to build a new system on top of a fundamental principle. One of the things that we're talking a lot about in different contexts is that just as we lived through an era of digital transformation where there were winners and losers, there were organizations that understood the magnitude of the change and the possibility that was ahead of us, and there was others that really didn't, that likewise were in the midst of a climate era where what is defining the opportunities and risks and market conditions and talent for organizations of all types is increasingly the need to address climate change. Is that something you're seeing as well? Well, what I'm seeing is the biggest festival of greenwashing you can imagine, because the people who have resources are working as hard as they can to pretend they are becoming climate resilient, but they're actually not. And the same way at the beginning of the internet thing, you'd see companies put an at sign, you know, NBC has that famous video clip with Katie Couric and Brian Gumbel talking about how to reach NBC News with your comments. And you know that they weren't reading the comments and they didn't understand what they were talking about, but they needed to get an at sign on the screen, so they did. And <laughs> when you see, I was at a packaging show the other day and there was a company that said, this plastic is 100% recyclable. No, it's not. It's just easy to say. And so what we're going to have to do is say not, how do I put some spin on this, but how do I rethink the very nature of what interactions are like? Because no, you can't have a carbon neutral oil company, no matter how hard you try. It makes me think of, of something that you wrote about the difference between hacks and creative leaders. And I wonder if it comes down to, to some extent, boldness and authenticity. But I'm curious, as someone that's written a lot and thought a lot about leadership, what is it that we need from leaders today? Who is your constituent if you are a leader, right? That if you work at Meta, every day you go to work and you're surrounded by 2,000 other people, each of whom own approximately a million dollars of stock options on average. If you do something that makes the stock go down, you have to look your 2,000 peers in the eye and say, that was me. That's why Yahoo is gone. Because when I was at Yahoo, the people who were running it came in every day and said, how do I make the stock go up today? Not how do I make something for the long haul? 
So leadership has the issue of who am I representing? Who are my constituents? And we have to start shifting that as well. Because a good leader doesn't want to say to their team, you're all fired because it's bad for the planet for me to hire you. That's hard to do as a leader. So again, fighting for this consistent, persistent, fair pricing of the inputs that we use so that we accurately solve the market's problem will cause leaders to do what they're good at, which is to serve their constituents. Well, and there's certainly a lot of pressure on companies now to make at least bold statements around what they're going to do for climate. But I think you know, one thing that stuck out, and sort of going back to this idea of hacks versus leaders, is hacks in some ways dialing it in of, of doing what's expected, but not necessarily bringing a creative new idea to the table or going above and beyond. And I'm curious, as you're looking at this massive amounts of greenwashing, are there also examples, you brought up Patagonia, so maybe that's one, but are there others of companies and leaders in the corporate world that really are putting a stake in the ground and making the type of change that not only we need, but that we need to follow? Yeah. you know, I think that the whole idea that some organization is going to become carbon neutral is fundamentally flawed because the accounting is really hard to do. And even if one organization becomes carbon neutral, it's really hard to multiply that without systemic change. So the magic of what happened to Patagonia last week is not that Patagonia as an individual company is going to double down on their commitment to the climate. It's that it's a signal that will make a whole bunch of other people feel incomplete until they follow in Patagonia's footsteps. And the same thing is true with the kind of systemic change that it's possible for a big organization, say Walmart, to do. When Walmart said, we're going to start featuring organic foods about 10 years ago, there was an outcry from the little mom and pop organic farmers because they said, whoa, if you do that, the big companies are all going to go organic, as if that was a terrible thing, right? So the systemic change is what we're looking for, not the press release, but how are you going to build systems where you are regularly measuring a different thing and profiting from making that other thing go up. And it's those sorts of shifts that we're starting to see. You know, what happens when a supermarket moves the beef aisle, makes it smaller and puts it way in the back, stops discounting beef as a way to get people to come shop there? When you start to make systemic changes like that, that's how you, you know, John Scully who used to run Apple, is also famous for what he did at Pepsi. And one of the things he did at Pepsi was come up with the concept of share of stomach. And he redesigned the Pepsi bottle so a teenager could drink a 16-ounce Pepsi all at once by making the top just a little bit wider. They spent time building systems so that people would become diabetics by consuming more Pepsi. And the amount of Pepsi consumed by the typical person, not market share, but drinks per person went way up because that's what they measured and that's what they made a profit on. So it's those sort of systemic changes that will end up reversing what's going on because human beings are still going to have time and they're still going to have money and they're still going to want convenience and they're still going to seek connection. How are we going to sell that to them without burning down the place where we live? 
Seth, you're a masterful communicator and have experience speaking to people in positions of great influence. And so I'm curious, what are you finding to be the narratives that really are most persuasive right now for taking the type of bold action we need around climate? Well, let me tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is starting with, we're all going to die. And human beings in the West don't like talking about it. They don't have a living will. They don't want to have end-of-life planning. And they don't want to talk about the fact that we're all going to die. We have been pushed really hard to care about convenience and the short run. And so if you talk to people who are systems builders in influence and talk about next week, it's much easier to get them to focus on systems things, status, and affiliation, right? You see people wearing the UN pin. Wearing the UN pin is people like us do things like this. The pin itself isn't going to save anybody. But being badged, being part of the group, being seen as somebody who's paying attention starts us down the path of systemic change. It sounds like you guys got a leaf blower going on at your end of the world. Uh, what do you know about leaf blowers? Okay. So one hour, one hour of using a leaf blower puts out as much carbon as driving a Ford Explorer from New York to LA. One hour versus a 3,000 mile ride. Now here's the key. The key is not for you to personally stop using a leaf blower. The key is if you get 20 other people, that's all you need, you can get leaf blowers banned where you live. And it's banning leaf blowers that makes a difference because then the leaf blower manufacturers will start only selling electric leaf blowers and the next thing we know, leaf blowers are gone. But don't hold back personally. Organize people and get them gone. They're against the law in my town. And I will tell you, I feel really badly for all the people that I have to tell that they're breaking the law because they have a boss and their boss is the problem because their boss has decided not to give them an electric leaf blower to do their job. Seth, I get the sense that this project isn't done for you. You've published the book. I have it here. It's phenomenal. There's also a website, and you mentioned that there's links to all of the footnotes from all of the pages in the Almanac to help people find out more. And it's an enormous trove of information. And it seems like it's a living, breathing effort where the resources are being updated. There's also a free downloadable guide for teachers that are interested in using the Almanac in, in classrooms. And my sense is that there's much more. Tell us about your next steps and how you'll be leveraging your superpowers for climate. There's a kid's book. There's 40 podcasts. There's a daily email. There's a teacher's guide. There's a page-by-page -page analysis. There's translations in multiple languages. We're about to have a free edition for people in Bangladesh because they're going to be some of the first people who are hardest hit. But I have no superpowers here. It's us. That the things I just listed, I didn't make them. And I am working very hard to make this so much bigger than me. I cannot solve this problem myself. I know that. But now that we have 1,900 people, if they each get 10 people, then we're at 20,000. And if they each get 10 people, then we're at 200,000. And now you're talking real numbers. So if someone is listening to this, we invite them to get three copies of the Almanac and share two of them have a conversation, then have another conversation, and then start your own thing, whatever that is. There are movements that have changed the politics of this country since I've been born, 
and all of them have in common persistent, consistent leadership, showing up, showing up, showing up, not slacktivism, not, oh, now I'm worried about this and now I'm worried about that. But this idea that people like us do things like this and that we're not going away. So I'm not a political activist. Politics makes me really nervous. What I am is a systems changer and I see systems. The purpose of this almanac is to help people see the system and just organize 10 other people. That's enough because if we organize, we can make things better. A last question, just since you're talking about being able to see, I noticed just how visual the book is. Obviously, a lot of thought went into the design. There's everything from infographics to maps to cartoons. And so you referenced before the importance of design and, and systems design. But as you think about the work that's ahead, what do you really feel is the importance or the role of design as we start making a, a new future more tangible? Well, one of the things that I stole from IDEO and then riffed on and made it slightly different is what is design thinking? It's two questions. Who's it for and what's it for? What is the change I seek to make and who am I seeking to change? And there wasn't a shortage of dense, all text monographs. We didn't need those. And the people we are seeking to reach wouldn't have read them anyway. And so the opportunity we have in all forms of design is to realize that it has a purpose. If you don't have a purpose, don't do it. The purpose is to make a change happen in a way that you are proud of. And if that means that you're making a table out of 82 pounds of polypropylene, I think you're confused. On the other hand, if you can figure out how to show up for the right person in the right way to make things better and own proudly the side effects of what you did, then that's exactly what we need from the designers of the world. It was a pleasure to have this conversation. Thanks so much for the work that you're doing and looking forward to following the Carbon Almanac as it continues to progress. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.